Well, Tina and I uh, raised four children, and I have fond recollections of uh, the many, many times that I would hear, Dad, I need your help. Uh, it may have been writing a paper, conducting research for a science project, building a Pinewood Derby race car, maybe paying for prom, or <laughs> providing a ride, or or whatever. And uh, as long as it was practically possible, Dad always helped. And I did write some really good English papers in AP English, by the way. I got A's on those papers <laughs> for my kids. Uh, to this day, I, I'm still Dad who's helping. Uh, I'm helping my grown children, you know, loading their furniture in a truck or a van and driving across town or across the country, as it were, uh, navigating their health insurance policy or doing their taxes or, you know how it goes, always spotting them a 20 when they leave, like paying the bill at the restaurant. Dad is still helping because I love my children. I want to see them succeed in life. And often I can provide the help that they so desperately need. Well, this morning we're launching a brand new three-week sermon series titled, Do You Need Help? Understanding the Person and Work of the Holy Spirit, Our Helper. And we're going to discover that our Father in Heaven actually loves us and wants to help in many ways. The help, provide the help that we so desperately need. And who among us doesn't need help, right? Personally, relationally, uh, emotionally, and just about every way we need the Father's help. And in these messages, we want to provide a, a biblical perspective of the Holy Spirit, our helper. We'd like to offer a rational, practical, and understandable explanation of His activity. And we'd also like to pray for every person who desires to be empowered and helped by the Holy Spirit. And today's message, we're going to kick things off, is titled, uh, Who is the Holy Spirit? So let's pray. Lord, we're just grateful for uh, the new lease on life that you gave us at the start of this brand new day, this brand new week. And so we say thank you. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the people and everything in it belong to you. And so, Lord, we begin by acknowledging your rulership and your lordship over all the creation. We're we're just humbled, Lord, at your grace that comes to us to help in our time of need. Thank you for how you've been such a gracious and good and benevolent God. And we worship you today, the start of this week. We want our lives to count for you, Lord. We want to grow in our experience of worshiping you and connecting and doing life together. Lord, we want to be people who are impacting our worlds where we live and play and work and go to school. Lord, we want to be changed to look more like you. So come today, even as we look at your word, put power on it to our lives in your name. Amen. Now, when I meet somebody new, uh, I like to hear their story because sharing history together uh, actually gets a, a, a provides an opportunity for us to, to get to know each other and, and understand what makes each other tick. And so I thought it'd be good to begin this series with a very brief history of the Holy Spirit. In church history, it's sad but true for a very long time now, the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit have been, first of all, ignored. You know, everybody knows, most everybody knows and believes in God the Father. We're familiar with the person and work of Jesus Christ the Son, but it's the Holy who? We've heard very little about the Holy Spirit. Actually, with the exception of the only two books in the New Testament, the books of 2nd and 3rd John, every one of the other 27 books in the New Testament 
addresses the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the Holy Spirit has been misunderstood. Uh, we've believed all sorts of unbiblical things about him. We've thought that he passed away with the death of the last apostle or the completion of the canon of Scripture. Uh, we've also believed that uh, he was uh, uh, like a ghost because older translations of the Bible refer to him as the Holy Ghost. And we've also believed that, that he's an it. And actually, we're, we're going to discover that the Holy Spirit always was, always will be. He didn't pass away. And that he's neither a ghost like, you know, Casper, uh, some cosmic, wispy, ethereal figure, nor uh, is he just an immaterial force or power or influence. He is an actual person. Now, not a person as you and I are people, flesh and blood and spirit, but he is person because the Bible attributes to him personal activity. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit's been resisted. We've actually resisted his efforts at moving in and taking control of our lives. We think, like, he's the boss or something. Well, actually, yes, he is. Uh, and uh, he wants to come in and move into our lives and take control and give us direction. Still others think, well, you know, the Holy Spirit is just for more, more emotional types. You know, I've heard about those holy roller people who believe in the Holy Spirit. Actually, there's always been a group of Christians, Christ followers, who have more fully embraced the person and work of the Holy Spirit through church history. And I like to think that they aren't necessarily emotional or weird, for that matter, because I am one of them. And I know many of you are as well. So that's church history. In the vineyard history, John Wimber, the founder of our movement of churches, gave the Holy Spirit credit for forming and shaping our movement's values, and vision. And a very significant event occurred when um, John Wimber's Vineyard Church in Yorba Linda, California was about two years old. On Mother's Day in 1980, John had invited Lonnie Frisbee, who was a very powerful and popular evangelist in what sociologists now call the Jesus People Movement of the 60s and 70s. He'd invited Lonnie to come and speak at, uh, at his Sunday evening worship service, Mother's Day, 1980. And at the end of that message, Lonnie gave an invitation for everyone under the age of 25 to come forward to the church to receive prayer. He said, and I quote, I have the cassette tape of this actual service, and so I, I can speak with some degree of uh, authority on what actually happened there. Lonnie said, and I quote, uh, to the audience, lay your hands out towards the young people. And then he turned and said to the young people, let him come. Now, he never actually said, as has often been recorded and reported in Vineyard Church history, come Holy Spirit. But there's either way, it's pretty close. At that moment, the Holy Spirit, his presence began to manifest in the audience. You can hear it on the audio cassette, and you can you can hear him beginning to come powerfully upon people as they began to weep and cry and groan, pray and sing and worship. Now, that watershed event gave birth to what, over the last 30 years, we've called power ministry in the vineyard. That summer, that church in Yorba Linda saw 1,700 conversions they baptized 700 new converts, most of them young adults. And it would be very safe to say that ever since that day, 
The person and work of the Holy Spirit is at the core of everything we do at the vineyard. For us, giving place to the Holy Spirit is more than a marketing slogan. For us, we want to continually find out what He is doing and then cooperate with Him as opposed to asking Him just to bless the work that we initiate. And so we prefer to, to partner with the, with the work that He initiates. It's, it's our goal that in many ways the Holy Spirit would be the one who leads our church family. We want to make room for His inbreaking and His gifts to bring the kingdom of God. Uh, whether that's in our worship services or in our small groups or when we eat and hang out and do life uh, or reach out in a, in a directed way to others. So now in answering the question, who is the Holy Spirit, I, I think it's very important to share that there are three things that every Christ follower needs to know about God. Otherwise, if you don't embrace all three, you end up in a doctrinal sinkhole. Some would call that heresy. The first thing to know is that God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is called the Trinity. Now, it's not persons as you and I are, but persons in that the Holy Spirit does the thing that, things that people do. The biblical record will indicate that, that He searches and knows, and teaches, and dwells, gives life, cries out, leads, intercedes, and strengthens, just to name a few. We'll unpack that in more detail next week. The second thing we need to know about God is that each person of the Trinity is fully God. That is to say, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in essence. They're not one-third of God or nor is any of the expressions, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, less than God, or a diminished in His attributes. In this sense, the, the Holy Spirit is no less capable than the Father or the Son. He is fully God. Thirdly, the, the third thing we need to know is that there is one God, not three gods. That's polytheism. We're monotheistic, one God. Now, no analogy of the Trinity is really adequate to describe it. Several have used things like, well, water, steam, and ice, all kind of reflective of three different modes of existence in water. Well, that breaks down because the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit all exist simultaneously. The eggshell, the egg white, the egg yolk, the tree roots and the branches and the and the uh, trunk, and then the fact that I'm at one and the same time, a husband and a father and uh, a, a pastor. But all three or four of those kinds of analogies break down when we try to apply it to the Trinity. So I think in the end we conclude that God as Trinity is mysterious and is other than we are. So by way of introduction, though, it, it is important to say that the Holy Spirit is fully, completely God. Now, we need God. That's the bridge to the next point. In the beginning, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where all of their needs for significance and security and relationship were met in Him. He was their total source of help. And, of course, we know that Adam and Eve surrendered these blessings uh, through their deliberate disobedience when they yielded to the temptation and ate the fruit 
And at that moment, they lost their relationship with God, and they were banished from His personal presence in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. And since that day, all mankind has been born separated from God in His presence and into a world that's marred by sin and the curse. And in that way, every human being has desperately needed God's help. Now, in a way, I like to think of the Bible as the story of recovering the presence of God. This theme is crucial to both Old and New Testaments. In fact, it serves as bookends for the whole Bible. Well, as we've already seen, it begins, the Bible begins in Genesis 1 to 3, where the creator of heaven and earth was present with those he created. And then the Bible concludes in Revelations 21 and 22 uh, with a marvelous picture of the renewed heavens and earth. In fact, we read it this way, Revelation 21 and 3, uh, verse 3. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so in the eternal state, the, the deep yearning of the human soul to be reunited forever with God as Father and Creator can be fully and deeply satisfied as once again we live intimately with Him in His presence, receiving everything that we need, all the help we need, because He's with us. And the, story, the Bible is really the story of what happens between those two bookends. And our life stories fit in there as well. Now, beginning in the Old Testament book of Exodus, the living God revealed that he planned to to dwell among his people in a tabernacle, or more literally, a tent. And then several centuries later, during the reign of King Solomon, God chose to localize His presence once again in the temple, in the mercy seat. Now, while all of Israel understood that the God who created heaven and earth could not be contained in a tent or a a tabernacle or a, a, a temple, an earthly structure made with human hands, nevertheless, the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple in the promised land became the focal point of Israel's existence. Even far more than the law, the Mosaic law, or other identity markers like circumcision or the dietary food laws or the Sabbath observances, it was God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple that distinguished Israel from all other people. That's where heaven and earth met. That's where they went for help. Then, scattered through the Old Testament, we see the presence of God through the Holy Spirit did empower a few certain individuals with special grace to do a a special work to fulfill the purpose of God. For example, the prophets to speak for God, Zechariah 7.12. Judges for deliverance. We see that in Judges 6.34. The priests were empowered for religious worship and service, Numbers 11.25. The kings for leading, 1 Samuel 16.13. And a few lay people 
Bezalel and Aholiab, for instance, in Exodus uh, 31.3, with skill and wisdom and craftsmanship to actually build the temple or the tabernacle. Now, the exact language in the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit came upon them, or on other occasions, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the biblical text records of these anointings or these special isolated cases to fulfill a special ministry. But this was never a general experience for all believers. The largest, for the largest majority of, of God's people, access to God was representational. You did it through anointed leaders. It was specific. It only occurred at a specific place the tabernacle or the temple. It was seasonal, only at prescribed seasons during the feasts. And it was corporate, never individual. Intimacy with God and experience His personal, powerful, indwelling presence and help, it was never a, never a general experience for all believers, that which we have become accustomed and taken for granted. Now, nevertheless, through the Old Testament era, In both the major and the minor prophets, there was a proclamation of a hope that one day God would come to live among his people again. For example, through Ezekiel, God promised, My dwelling place will be with them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel 37, 27. A number of the prophets indicated that there uh, would be a, a day when God would accomplish this as he poured out his spirit on all people. Perhaps one of the more famous proclamations by the prophet Joel in chapter 2, verses 28 to 30. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Now, this was a revolutionary prophecy because no, no longer would God's a spirit be reserved for particular people at particular times in a particular place. Rather, he would pour out his spirit regardless of age or race or gender or age or background or rank. Even the servants would receive the spirit. And this coming of the spirit would be accompanied by a new ability to hear God, dreams and visions and prophecies. The prophet Ezekiel framed uh, the new day this way in chapter 36, verses 26 to 28. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from your from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. I will be your God. And so a number of the prophets painted a picture of a new kind of relationship between God and man. They pointed to the day of God's continual, abiding, powerful, personal presence through His Holy Spirit. Now, the New Testament, in hindsight, calls this hope the promise of the Father. We'll see that in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is giving His final instructions to His disciples, when He says in chapter four, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. The Apostle Paul uh, described it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, God was going to come to his people once again, and, and this would be accomplished through his personal 
powerful, immediate presence through the Holy Spirit. No longer would the temple or the tabernacle be the place where God dwells, where heaven and earth meet. Rather, God would now live in us as His people. We are now the temple and the tabernacle where God lives. Now we're going to take just a few minutes to look at the initial fulfillment of this promise of the Father in the New Testament. As you probably may know, that for 400 years, as the Old Testament canon closed, God's voice went silent. And then John the Baptist emerged on the scene, and he prophesied these powerful words about Jesus. Mark 1.8, he says, I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the word baptize in the original language is a flexible metaphor. That just simply means it's figurative language. And it means to dip or to plunge or to immerse or to envelop. And it's quite natural, in my mind, for John to have used his immersion in water, something immediate and right at hand, to picture the coming immersion of the believer by the Spirit. And so what John may have meant by the phrase is something like this. I do the work that I'm doing with ordinary created things like water. The Messiah, he's going to be altogether different. He'll do what he does by the Holy Spirit, the agent of creation, something uncreated. He will immerse and envelope and and fill you with the Holy Spirit. And so to be baptized in the Spirit is to be immersed in, surrounded by, enveloped by, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what John was indicating. Now, interestingly, Jesus was water baptized and filled with the Spirit prior to the, the, the inauguration of his ministry. Each of the four Gospels at Jesus' baptism declare that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And then after a 40-day period of testing in the wilderness... Luke's gospel tells us in chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 14, that Jesus returned uh, to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4.14, where at that moment he went to the, to the, uh, the synagogue in Nazareth to read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and Luke says that uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 18 and 21, that, and I quote, Jesus now says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And today the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. So Jesus was water baptized and filled with the Spirit prior to the launch of his ministry. And then as he was preparing for his death and his burial and his resurrection, uh, and then the ascension, the return to God the Father, Jesus promised his disciples that he would actually come to live in them through the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bible, you might want to look at this powerful promise in John 14. It's, it's one of the most direct and powerful promises that Jesus made to his now fearful and somewhat anxious-filled uh, disciples as they were anticipating his departure and his, in his death. Actually, the three chapters in John 14, 15, and 16 actually contain kind of like his, his farewell address to the, the, crew of disciples, and you may want to read that as, as an extended period of time, concludes then in chapter 17 with his prayer. 
But there in John 14, verses 16 and 17, look how Jesus promised his disciples that he'd come to live in them by the Holy Spirit. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world can't receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So Jesus was referring to the coming Holy Spirit as the advocate. Other translations read the counselor or the helper from the Greek word parakletos, more literally, one who comes alongside to help. I like to think of Jesus' promise as indicating he's going to come live in us as our helper. Now, in his final words to, to his disciples, Jesus encouraged them to remain in Jerusalem, Acts 1-4, and wait for the gift the Father promised. And then in verse 5 of Acts 1, he reiterates the promise that John the Baptist has made. He says, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so here Jesus equates the gift that the Father promised with being baptized in or by the Holy Spirit. Now the return of God's personal, powerful presence through the Holy Spirit and giving us the help that we need as both prophesied by the prophets and promised by Jesus was initially fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to see where this promise to the church at large was initially fulfilled. That which was promised by the prophets and prophesied and promised by Jesus. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, reading verses 1 to 4. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So the disciples, now numbering about 120, um, were gathered together, presumably in an upper room, uh, or perhaps in, in, uh, in an upper room in a, in a, in a building or a, a house on the temple grounds. And there were three witnesses of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We noticed that there was an audible witness, the sound of a rushing violent wind, not an actual wind, but, but the sound of the wind. There was a visual evidence of the Lord's presence, uh, tongues of fire that rested on each of the disciples' heads, and then an oral testimony. The disciples were speaking in languages that they'd never learned, supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. The reaction in verses 5 to 13 in that chapter, we won't read it all, but there were representatives from 15 different countries as they were attending the, the, uh, the feast of Pentecost. In verse 6, we can see that some of the, the audience were bewildered. Some were utterly amazed and perplexed, verse 7, uh, because they heard the disciples declaring the wonders of God in their own native language. And still others mocked the phenomenon, verse 13, said, these guys are, these guys are drunk. 
Then Peter stood up to explain the phenomenon in verses 14 to 36. And he said, no, this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then, and then he begins to explain in verse 14 what happened. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people aren't drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning, it's much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. Then he quotes Joel 2 that we've read. In the last days, God said, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And in those days, I'll pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they'll prophesy. And so... He's offering the context as what you're witnessing is the fulfillment of the prophetic proclamation of the hope that one day God would once again live with all of his people through his personal indwelling presence. And then Peter went on, and after preaching about Christ's resurrection and uh, his miraculous ministry, his death in verse 23, his, his resurrection in verses 24 to 32, he explained that, Jesus has now ascended to God the Father and was now enabled to pour out the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear, verse 33. And the response, of course, was the audience was cut to the heart and said, well, what what should we do? And then he gave the first uh, altar call in church history in verses uh, 38 and 39. Each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to show that you've received forgiveness of your sins. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and even to the Gentiles, all who've been called by the Lord our God. And so Peter said, you've got to repent. You've got to stop, turn around, change your mind, change your life direction as you receive the kingdom of God. He said, secondly, you've got to be baptized. You've got to identify yourself as a new member of God's community, his kingdom community on the earth. You see, God is not just saving individuals and preparing them to die and go to heaven. That's a very diminished view of what the Holy Spirit's coming and God's activity on the earth are all about. Rather, he is creating a people among whom he can live here on the earth. Heaven and earth meet in us as his people and among whom us as our shared life together, we actually reflect the goodness and grace of God and His power and His grace and His love and His mercy and His truth. People are supposed to see that in our shared life together as we live out being filled with the Holy Spirit. So repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, today, when a man or a woman hears the gospel of the kingdom, they repent and believe and become a a person marked as and identified by God. They are born again, John 3, verse 3. And at that point, we become people that are born of the Spirit, John 3, 8. This is the new heart that is spoken of by the prophets. And at that very point, in this sense, every believer receives the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit upon conversion. That's the new Spirit that's now living within us, as prophesied by the prophets, as promised by Jesus. And the promise is not just to those that were listening. But as the text reads, to all that the Lord our God will call Jew and Gentile alike. There are, there are no longer any classes of people. No longer is God's presence and help representational and, and specific and seasonal. No longer is access to God limited in those ways because heaven and earth now meet, not in the temple, not in the tabernacle, but in us as God's people in whom his spirit lives. 
I thought I'd wrap up this morning by just sharing with you a brief bit of our story um, on how my wife and I first encountered the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I was raised in a traditional church that that uh, said very little about the Holy Spirit, other than on the day of which you were baptized, uh, they prayed over you for the, what they called the sealing of the Spirit, and I was so biblically illiterate, I just thought that meant so he wouldn't get out. But we, uh, with, along with three other couples, my wife and I were Christ followers who were hungry to grow personally and spiritually. And uh, so we began reading and studying the, the Bible like we thought you ought to do. And we stumbled on the book of Acts. And no, no later than the second chapter, realized there was a lot of stuff in that chapter that we'd been told had either passed away or was no longer relevant. And we made this mistake of actually asking, the elders in the church, like, well, well, then where did it pass away? And where, where do we see that that stuff is no longer for today? And we just thought, well, if they were filled with the Spirit, then so should we, in the same way that they did. The, the rest of the book of Acts shows that it was custom in many cases to lay hands on one another. And so on one Friday night in the summer of 1977, July 7th, actually, uh, my, my wife and I were out eating Papa Del's pizza with my sister and her husband, who were just a few steps ahead on the journey with us. And we just noticed that there was something that they liked, that, that was different about them. And so rather innocently over, over Papa Del's pizza, we said, we want what, what you have. And they smiled and didn't say much other than saying, why don't you come over to our house and we'll just pray for you. And, and being as innocent and naive as we were, we thought, sure, what, what could be like unsafe about that? And we went over to, to their house and sat on what then later became known as the power couch, where these, these exchanges happened many, many times over the next several decades. And they uh, prayed over us a rather simple prayer to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And suddenly and unexpectedly, my wife and I were dramatically filled with a power and presence we'd never known as Christ followers to that day. And we began speaking in a language that we didn't understand. And it rather surprised us and blessed us. And that experience on July the 7th, 1977, opened up a doorway for us into a deeper life of experiencing the person and work of the Holy Spirit that we've been enjoying now for 30-some-odd years. And um, God began to bring us the help that we so desperately needed. We began to see and understand the Bible and a in a new and powerful and intimate and direct way. We, we began to communicate with God in ways that we had been previously unknown about. We began to experience His gifts operating through us, even though we didn't really understand what they were. Uh, we experienced His power and presence in worship in a, in a dynamic that our previous uh, walk as Christ followers had, had not educated us about. It changed everything. Now, I don't perceived that we became holy rollers or, you know, people who were weird and otherworldly, tried to grow in a rational and biblical understanding of what this new life in the Spirit was. And, and that's what we've actually tried to do then, is learn that, model it, and practice it, and teach it over the last 30 years. And um, it's enabled us to walk intimately with Him and connect with others and make the Bible actually understandable and His work not seem otherworldly and weird and cosmic. Because uh, I, we've seen so often that when, when the evangelical church has such a diminished view of the Holy Spirit, we either want to discount it or we look at the experiences of, of the other more Pentecostal and charismatic churches and we just say, we can't relate to that. And so we abandon it altogether. And what I love about the vineyard history is that we're right there in the radical middle, embracing the strengths of both our evangelical tradition and the gifts and power of the Holy Spirit and Pentecostal traditions. And I love being in the radical middle. 
And that's where, where we're going to be going. And so my encouragement, friends, is, a, 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 is, is this, that God the Father wants to help you. He wants to see you succeed. He wants you to experience the real life that Jesus came to give. And we all know we need help desperately. And it, it's as we embrace uh, a fuller dimension of the person and work of the Holy Spirit that this is going to happen. And so my, my encouragement is that over the next uh, several weeks, as we study the Bible and, and uh, together here and in our small groups, that you allow and invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill and transform and empower our lives. Lord, we are gracious uh, and, and humble to say thanks for your work. It, it's, it's amazing, Lord. Um, sometimes a little scary, and sometimes we, we join it reluctantly. But you are the potter, we are the clay. And so our lives are not our own, and we want to say we are, are yours. We want to echo what you already claim and that, that you own us and that our lives are yours. And so come Holy Spirit and, and enable us to more fully worship and surrender and serve and love. Holy Spirit, uh, come and have your way. Rule in, in the throne of our lives and in our family our children and grandchildren and our church family and ultimately in our community. And now, Lord, as we return to you these these prayers through song and these gifts of our hard-earned money, we we say, may you receive them for what they are, tokens, inadequate though they, they might be, tokens that we love you and we want you to come and invade our lives in, in all these ways. Receive them, Lord, and bless them is our prayer in your name. Amen.